0: Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. For this week's episode, we're bringing you a conversation that was part of Acton's recent Poverty Cure Summit. The Poverty Cure Summit provided an opportunity for participants to listen to scholars, human service providers, and practitioners address the most critical issues we face today, which can either exacerbate or alleviate poverty. These speakers discuss the legal, economic, social, and technological issues pertaining to both domestic and global poverty. Rooted in foundational principles of anthropology, politics, natural law, and economics, participants had the opportunity to gain a deeper understanding of the root causes of poverty and identify practical means to reduce it and promote human flourishing. In this conversation, Acton's Michael Matheson Miller spoke with Ismail Hernandez, executive director of the Freedom and Virtue Institute, and Peter Greer, president and CEO of Hope International, to examine the challenge of poverty in the US and internationally, and the most effective ways to think about poverty in light of the transcendent dignity of the human person. To learn more about how you can still access the on-demand content from our Poverty Cure Summit, please visit povertycuresummit.org. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or
1: wherever you listen. Welcome everyone to the Poverty Cure Summit. My name is Michael Mathis Miller. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm a senior research fellow here at the Acton Institute, and thank you so much for joining. I'm really delighted today to have our panelists, Ismail Hernandez and Peter Greer. Uh, Ismail is the author of Not Tragically Colored. He is the founder of the Freedom and Virtue Institute, and Peter Greer um, is the president and CEO of Hope International and the author of many books, including The Danger- Spiritual Danger of Doing Good and The Poor Shall Be Glad. So I'm really delighted to have them uh, here today. So, Peter and Ismail, thank you very much for joining. Uh, this is the Poverty Cure Summit, and about 10 years ago uh, or so, we started at the Acton Institute the Poverty Cure Project. And so we did a number of things. We did a, a, a six-part DVD series uh, called the Poverty Cure DVD Series. It's about 152 minutes, uh, really examining from a faith perspective of how do we think about the poor? We also did, a and, and poverty, and, and what, what do we how do we engage with the poor people in an appropriate way and from the Christian tradition? We also did a full-length documentary film called Poverty, Inc., which is for general audiences and really the underlying themes of the whole poverty cure project and poverty inc i think are three one is that human persons are not objects we are subjects we should be the protagonists of our own story of development and that too often uh, we have objectified poor people we've treated them as the object of our charity or the objects of our pity or the objects of our compassion Uh, but human beings are not objects to be manipulated or socially engineered and so this is the first idea to reframe the way we think about how we engage uh, with poverty and with poor people who are people just like all of us Uh, the second was really a analysis of the shift from charity to humanitarianism and so We've really replaced charity, which is concrete love of the other. So charity, as we know, comes from the Latin word caritas. It means to seek the good of the other, to will the other person's good. And we've shifted that really to a humanitarianism, which really focuses on providing comfort. It kind of stops, has these limited horizons. And so um, it doesn't take into account, I think seriously enough, human flourishing, and from a Christian perspective, the eternal destiny of the person. So we wanted to highlight that. And then the third is this fundamental question. What we often ask, like, what's the problem? How, why are people poor? But I think the better question is, what do people need to be in a, to be able to create prosperity in their own families and their own communities? And then how can we come alongside them and work in that with that process. And one of the things that we stress in the, throughout Poverty Cure and Poverty Inc and the Poverty Cure project is that oftentimes, for the poor, it's not simply that they lack stuff, that they lack material goods, but that they are excluded from the institutions of justice that enable them to create prosperity in their families and in their communities. And these are things like, clear te- title to land or ability to register their business and participate in the formal economy and a host of things that that many people who live in wealthy countries take for granted so these are the big themes of poverty cure and now 10 years out in 2020 we want to go into those themes and discuss so i'm really delighted to begin this poverty cure uh, summit with two very very impressive people peter greer and Ismail hernandez and um both of you, Peter and Ismail, have been very helpful to me over the years uh, as we were starting this poverty uh, project, learning from you and getting your insights. And, and you both of you, along with others, helped shape a lot of the things I just talked about. Uh, so I'm delighted you could join us today. So um, why, don't we, why don't we start uh, with maybe big picture questions? Um, people are concerned. They want to help the poor. They want to be engaged. What are some of the Big picture framed or mental models, or the best way for us to think about helping the poor, and then maybe what are some of the uh, pitfalls to to avoid? Ismail, you, shall we start with you? Sure, sure.
2: Uh, I can tell you from my experience that what happens many times is that those engaged in poverty alleviation, which, as you mentioned very well, is itself a uh, misleading, it should be how we make people flourish, what makes people thrive. Many times we look first at the problem, then we look at the prob- program, and finally we look at the, at the eyes of the poor. So we basically instrumentalize the poor towards the purpose of fisk- fixing a problem. In other words, the problem begin to be seen as problems to be solved and uh, bodies to be clothed, mouths to be fed, and not unique and unrepeatable human persons made in the image and likeness of God with the moral capacity of self-realization. In other words, we don't look at the assumptions we bring to the table about who the poor are and who are we supposed to be alongside the poor. So the assumptions, the prism, that we bring in those glasses we put on ourselves and to which we look at reality it needs to be clear before we begin action towards helping the poor. So first we look at the problem, then we look at our program, and finally we look at the, at the eyes of the poor
1: and we need to invert that relationship. Great, thank you Ismail. Peter, what would you say? Um, how would you answer that question?
3: Yeah, and the first thing, Michael, is what an absolute gift to be on the journey with you ten years, and uh, and counting. Uh,
1: so you so look the much same, <laughs> and I've lost all my hair. <laughs> no, this so is I, a if special. There's a little, if there's envy here, just you know where it's coming from. <laughs> this is a
3: special community, and I feel like I found my people uh, with Poverty Cure, and so so fun to be here and continuing this conversation. Michael, I think the the, the three things for me that come up, number one is very similar to what is real. So Kate Blee was sharing about how we see people. And for me, the, the story that comes to mind is how even as an organization in poverty alleviation, we had as our mission statement to invest in the dreams of the poor as we proclaim and live the gospel. And, and this whole thing about as we invest in the dreams of the poor, what, what struck me is as we were putting this mission statement, even in the offices around the world, we had one of our staff in the Republic of Congo who said, we're not putting that on our wall. Because calling the people that we serve the poor only reinforces the problems that we're trying to solve. We're not going to put that on our wall. And not only did we not put that on the wall, we changed our mission statement. Because identifying people by the economic challenges dishonors them and it dishonors the God who made them with incredible capacity and worth and so we want to use human centric language we want to focus first on the person their gifts their dreams their abilities so the first thing is how we see people and even the words that we use the second piece is how we see work and if you look at the Duke University study that was done uh, Jobs for Life does a masterful job telling this but they talk about how in the United States when churches engage in the issue of poverty, the top three ways that they engage are they give away food, they build houses, and they give away clothing. The least common way that they address the problem of poverty is anything having to do with work. And so I think we need a changed way of seeing people, we need a changed way of viewing work. And then the third piece is then understanding what are the obstacles to work. And that's where I love what Poverty Gear is doing, to understand what are the obstacles to employment, what are the obstacles to trade, what are the obstacles of entrepreneurship, and how can we collectively address those and open up the doors of possibility for remarkable individuals who have the capacity and drive to work. There just are a few pieces that are ext-
1: make it extra difficult to engage in meaningful employment. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. I think I think um, I mean, both of you articulate this so well that our language matters, how we speak about the problem. And if we frame the problem as maybe a social engineering complex issue, as opposed to that, we're actually dealing with human beings just like us. And how would we want to be addressed? And I remember um, in, the, in the during the Poverty Cure Project in talking to people about orphan care or care with children. I remember one person brought it up like imagine how you would feel if let's say you didn't have a job and you were struggling and you could to take care of your children and came and said, here, I got an idea. Yeah, we'll, we'll take care of your children for you, right? What would we say? We're like, no, I want to take care of my own children. I, I need a job. And it's, it's somehow, I think um, we lose that perspective. And I think there's just one also quick comment on a theological perspective. Um, there's, a theologian explains sometimes that, like in the fall with Adam and Eve, when Adam first saw Eve, he says, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And he saw identity and difference. And they but in that identity, difference is this call to communion. But after the fall, right? God says, "You shall desire your husband, and he will de- he will lord it over you." And the, he explains that the identity was covered by the difference. And so Adam turned Eve into an object for his use. And I think, Peter, you um, highlight this, especially that, we, we sometimes let the identity of someone's poverty or condition or ethnicity or race or whatever it is cover. Up, I'm sorry, the difference. We let the difference cover up the fact that they are human beings created in the image of God. So I think both of you, that's, that's very, um, I think, powerful and I think a foundational thing. And, you know, I, the last thing I'll say about that is, you know, as I talk to people around the world, I know Peter and, and Ismail working so much with the, with, with, with the people that you do. It's not simply a slogan. It actually changes the way you behave concretely. And I think um, sometimes we want a call to action, but we don't think first. I think both of you set out there thinking what what maybe maybe you've already answered this, but let me at least uh, give this opportunity to you. What do you think, in addition to what you've just said, are some of the pitfalls that that people fall into maybe unintentionally? What would you say? Peter, we'll start with you.
3: Yeah, no, Michael, I think you're exactly right. And, and at least within a nonprofit space, the danger and challenge of this is heightened because we have this stakeholder gap that the individuals that are contributing to an organization are not the same individuals that are receiving the services. And so it's easy for an organization to elevate the voice of the donor, the one who's providing the support, and that's a needed and necessary part of the work that we're doing. But if we're doing that in such a way that we're not elevating even higher the voice of the individuals that we serve, we're gonna have programs, we're gonna have stories that might actually not be best for the individuals that we're serving. And so this stakeholder gap, how can we make sure that we are elevating the voice and the loudest voice, the person who is always at the table is the person who is receiving the services, even if it's set up within a nonprofit space. So that stakeholder gap is a really, really big deal. And the way around that, I mean, this is part of the benefit of a market-based solution where there is an individual that is in some way contributing to the goods and services that they're having. But even more than that, there can be an institutional discipline to say, if we're going to love, we have to start by listening. If we're going to love, we're not going to do monitoring and evaluation so that we can prove our impact alone. We're going to listen because we want to improve the way that we care and serve and operate these programs. And so elevating and making sure the primary and loudest voice that shapes programs and plans is the individual that we are trying to serve. That voice needs to be loud. It needs to be structured. It needs to be listened to more loudly than, uh, than any of the other voices. So I think that focus and care on individuals, and Michael, you talk about it so much, this proximity got to make sure that the solutions are proximate to the problems and not just developed far away and then imported in without really listening and learning as the foundational place for all planning and all intervention.
1: You know, I think that's interesting. Uh, Before we go into Ismail, I think one thing that strikes me is that, you know, a lot of times when we look at a program, uh, we look for the impact, as you pointed out, Peter, but sometimes we're, we're blind to the negative impact. And so I think in, in your model, I think that also helps create what you could maybe call a 360, where you say, well, okay, this is the good we've done. Let's look at the, maybe the harm that we've done. And if you're not listening to those voices, then you miss the harm because of a confirmation bias to the, to the good. Um, Ismail, what would you say um, in like, some of the kind of pitfalls that, that, you, that you see to, to really encourage us to avoid?
2: I definitely align myself with, what Mr. Greer just said, but I think it's very important that that we understand the difference between a crisis situation of need, an authentic crisis situation of need, and the condition of poverty itself. And many times we we, we understand the condition of poverty as if it is a perpetual crisis situation. And crisis because then the, the channel, the instrument to get benefit, So people live in perpetual crisis because crisis gives them the illusion of success. Some needs are met, but in the process we are not discovering the deeper human need. The apparent need is is met, but not the deeper human need Mm -hmm. that, as Mr. Greer said, can only be understood in that encounter with the poor. So we end up with focusing on the biological needs of the human person. You know, your existential needs are too complicated. (laughs) But I know that you need food and you may need clothing. So I'm going to focus on those needs and then it becomes a transactional system. The poor are there without the stuff. We are here with it. And then we transfer those items to them and we call that compassion. In reality, compassion, by definition, means to be there suffering with the poor. We suffer with them. We come alongside, side by side, the poor, and we learn from their experience because now we are experiencing, at least to a degree, what they go through. So we we had to focus on what Blaise Pascal called the dignity of causality that God, in his love and mercy for us, chose to use our prayer to bring about his perfect will. He did not need us to bring about his perfect will, but he chose to do that. So we need to do the same with the poor. I may not need them to give them food, but I know and I choose to, to meet that need alongside them as, Scenery in the drama of their lives being lived and being built by themselves.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's um, that's important. I think this goes to the point that's really at part of our the poverty cure project of going back into the tradition of what we mean by charity that too too much we've kind of adopted really a a, a contemporary secular hollowed out vision of christian love and you know and, and of course there's people in in you know in the secular world doing wonderful things right but but it, we have this deep tradition that we've almost forgotten and i think you you bring out that that very important point let's um uh, change direction for just a minute. And I could talk to both of you uh, briefly, just a little bit about your journey to get here. So I know like Ismail, I know you, you have a have kind of a, a pretty uh, dramatic journey. I mean, you were raised uh, in a communist household, you you know with these strong uh, communist beliefs and had a, a real transformation. Sure. Um so maybe we'll start with Ismail and then Peter maybe talk about your your journey. How did you get to um, how, how did you get involved with Hope? What were some of the things that that were so important for you as a, uh, that inspired you to do this work? So Ismail, well, let's start with you.
2: Well, I come from Puerto Rico. I, I was born into a communist household. My father was founding member of the Communist Party of Puerto Rico and I joined the party with him and I grew up in as a red diaper baby. Right. And uh, I, so I I eventually joined the party with him. But my mother used to send me to to mass with friends without my knowing my father knowing about it because you know he would not have allowed it. Uh, God is the opinion of the people that keeps to you thinking in heaven while the capitalists are having a good time here on earth, as my father used to say. So eventually I wanted to join that double consciousness of Christ and Marx and what to do. I joined the Jesuit order, of course. Uh, So I I was going on my way to Nicaragua to study philosophy uh, under the great masters of liberation theology, but they were murdered in El Salvador in 1987 and they did not send me there. And I landed at the University of Southern Mississippi of all places. So you can imagine this black Puerto Rican boy who hates America lands in Dixie. <laughs> uh, but, but I always say that that's where my lungs were filled with the breath of freedom. Because for the first time in my life, I, I came to understand a new way of, of seeing the human person. As a, as a Marxist, you're a, you a, you a drop in a great wave, the wave of revolution. Apart from that wave your life means nothing. It's a curious accumulation of atoms destined to nothingness. Mm-hmm. But I, I discovered in America a deeper understanding that the human person is unique and unrepeatable, that I have what it takes, and that God looks at me in that way, in that fashion, as unique and unrepeatable with this moral capacity of self-realization. And that is what we need to discover. I discovered that that is the only way to help the poor, to respect the poor, instead of feeling sorry for the poor, and avoid these comprehensive and ways of looking at the poor, as Doctor uh, Mr. Greer said, you know, boxing them into these meaningless categories of poor, rich, black and white, and looking at the poor Again, as unique and unrepeatable. So, I I, I, resent, I rescinded of the Marxist idea. I began to fight for the ideas of freedom in the inner cities of America.
1: That's yeah. It's a powerful story, and that that focus on the unique, unrepeatable nature of the person. I think is 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 very profound. And it, again, it, it's not simply theory. It really changes the way we think. Peter, how about your 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 journey here to 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 your work and your your leadership of Hope International? Uh,
3: again this is so fun i mean you're gonna hear a little bit of contrast between our upbringings but the amazing thing is both of us here and uh, passionate about a lot of the same things but my upbringing was a little bit different i grew up as a pastor's kid in massachusetts and i grew up with Uh, uh, parents that uh, taught us the way of Jesus, and it was unmistakable that uh, faith had to make an impact, not just for eternity, but but for now. And especially, you can't read the Bible without seeing these themes of caring for the foreigner, for the widow, for the orphan. You you can't read Scripture without the clear invitation that our relationship with God has to make an impact in the way that we treat other people, especially uh, those that would be, considered perhaps more vulnerable. But for me, the way that that was lived out was we would go on mission trips and you know there's a book by Bob Lupton about toxic charity. I was a practitioner of that. We would go and we would bring our suitcases and we would give things away and then we'd go back the next year and we'd give more things away and even as a kid, I remember sensing there's got to be a better way as we would be working, painting, and you'd see individuals watching us and it became pretty clear they would have loved to have that job that we were they're doing. So throughout these mission trips, I, I, I developed a love of the world, um, a, a way that my faith connected to the way that I see others but the way that that was lived out was in such a small and limited way. And so fast forward a few years, I was studying in, in Russia, international business, and for the first time heard about Mohammed Yunus and the Grameen Bank, and asked a question, why isn't the church engaged? If, if this sort of an approach of seeing individuals with gifts and capacity and creativity, if this way of mobilizing capital to invest in their dreams, if this is powerful, why is the church not engaged? And so that has become my passion about these tools of savings groups, these tools of economic development, and really seeing the church using these tools as it addresses poverty. And so I worked in Zimbabwe and Cambodia and Rwanda uh, before eventually moving to Lancaster, Pennsylvania to now serve with Hope International, but really about Jesus and jobs
1: as the areas that continue to captivate my passion. I think that's a, I think both of those are stories are, are, are different, but I think, as you said, they, they come together. And I think one of the things that that stands out is just this connection between, in a sense that there's a technical element right, that we're, that, you know, Father Sarico likes to quote Etienne Gilson saying, piety is not a substitute for technique. So you need piety and technique. You need Jesus and jobs, as as, uh, you said. I don't think that's as elegant as piety is not a substitute for technique, Peter, but it's, you know, Jesus and jobs is a good start. And, uh, but I think that in a sense that the two things that strike me, one is um, just the, you said, you know, you saw what Muhammad Yunus was doing and you thought, okay, why can't the church do this right and so you in a sense as i said earlier we can learn from what other people are doing then you rooted it in a really rich anthropology of the human person as unique and unrepeatable as ismail said and i think another thing that's that is important and as part of our tradition and i'll put it this way that as christians we're called to be you know faithful right to to care for the widow and the orphan in their distress. But we're also called to be philosophical. And I mean by that is that love of wisdom, a pursuit of truth. And so much of poverty alleviation becomes ideological, right? And to put in the words of is- like Ismail said, like you start with a problem and the solution. And I think what, what is always striking to me, and I've seen this a lot, is, and I think this is a strength. I mean, look, Christians make a lot of mistakes. We, we make mistakes all the time. And sometimes we can become ideological, but I think the sense of humility to say, wait, what we're doing doesn't work. And this connects so profoundly to the Christian understanding of justice that our, the, the effects matter. And uh, St. Thomas Aquinas has this great line that I, I, I found it a couple of years ago and it struck me. He said, injustice can occur in two ways. The violent act of the man who possesses power. Right. That's obvious. We know that. Right. And the false prudence of the sage. And that's the policymaker who, in a sense, gets so taken in his or her own ideas, isn't humble to listen to the voices. And I think that, that, that's, that's where, our, te- that's where our, our tradition really has a lot to, to continually, to have this incremental learning, right? As opposed to the kind of, we've solved the problem. So I think both of those stories uh, illustrate that. Um, I want to ask one more thing, then I'm going to go into some questions from, from audience members. And also, to, I want to go into a little bit more technical things. But so... Poverty Cure is about 10 years old. I want to talk about, well, I want, first, I want to talk about mistakes, okay? I want to talk about um, mistakes that, that you've made, and but I first want to ask this question. So Poverty Cure is 10 years old, and, and it's, I think we've been, we've been very uh, delighted with the response to that. But if, you look, if we look at it, we all have blind spots. We all make errors. Um, And this is a tough question. And and you you think, well, I've been invited to critique, but I'm asking you to make a critique. Like if you would say, what was something maybe in Poverty Cure that we had a blind spot about that? Maybe we weren't taking seriously enough. Maybe we were too sanguine about about a, a question or maybe we weren't or maybe we were were leaving out really important elements like a mistake or a blind spot that 10 years from now saying, you know, one thing I think we've ignored is—is—is is, is this? What, and what what critiques would you make of, of, of the poverty cure project broadly speaking? speaking? And then I'm going to ask you about your mistakes. So so be prepared. <laughs> so Peter, why don't we start with you?
3: Yeah, thanks, Michael. And I do have to go back. Uh, Jesus and Jobs, I heard that first uh, from John Perkins. Uh, so that is not uh, original of me uh, in its eloquence. But I mean, Aquinas and Perkins, that's a pretty powerful combo of, of those two. But uh, when I think about the space, Michael, I think the, the first thing that comes to mind, it relates exactly to what you are saying, is I, I think just about my little space in terms of economic development and microfinance and savings groups. There was a time when uh, Muhammad Yunus Won the Nobel Peace Prize, the United Nations uh, declared the Year of Microcredit, and it was heralded as if this tool was the panacea for global poverty. And and shortly after that, there were studies that came out, and there was a number of individuals that wrote critiques of the sector. And uh, in many ways, it went in a very short period of time from being this is the most amazing tool. Bono said. If every woman receives a microloan, poverty's going to be history on that. And, and so it was heralded as this panacea for global poverty. And then in a very short years, it was, nope, this only exacerbates uh, global poverty. And the reality is it's a little bit in between. (laughs) It's it's a tool. A tool can be used for good and a tool can be used for ill. It depends on who uses it and how they use it. And someone who gets access to a loan simply to become over indebted for consumer purchases is not gonna be any better off over the long, it's going to hurt them. And so I think about in some ways that the credibility for us uh, comes when we can critique the other approach, and we can critique ourselves. And so I think about uh, Poverty Cure, and Michael, maybe that'll be the one piece, at least in in my comments that I've made, of the excitement is still there. 10 years later, that excitement is tempered, and there's a few other qualifying statements that need to be added. And so not erring on the side of this is all bad, this is all good. aid is bad all trade is good all microfinance is good all charity is bad and the reality is it's more mixed and so that ability to have a nuanced conversation with a little more candid uh, disclaimers about when and where and how a particular intervention is applied
1: yeah that's great I, mean, I think that's something too i would say i've learned like you you think about what you've said in the past like you know strong position you realize well not exactly, right? It's more complex than that. I think that's part of the the, the humility um, that we need to we really need to to cultivate. Uh, Ismail, what, what would you say? So maybe, and again, feel free to critique poverty cure or also maybe mistakes that you you've made. What what are things we could that we're missing that we've kind of we don't want to become triumphalist or too comfortable? Like, oh, we've got our slogan; it really works. You know, it may be true, but but we're missing something. We have blind spots, and of course, we can't. I can't see my blind spots. So. so um, mm-hmm. it, having this discussion can help push push us.
2: It, it's hard for me to to speak about the, the errors or mistakes of poverty cure. I was there from the very beginning. I can tell you that the only uh, the only thing that we could have done better was to make it simpler. Uh, we, we had a solid foundation and the principles and the ideas that we believe. Uh, but how to add new? Uh, Partners into the mix. Uh, probably we should have uh, explored better. Who are these partners? What they truly, truly believe? Do they really stand aligned with the principles and philosophy of Poverty Cure? And probably goes a little slower in terms of adding more and more partners into the mix. Uh, I have learned in my own experience that simplicity is the answer here. We need to be very simple and very practical in our approach because simplicity is, is the spice of freedom. Simplicity, the opposite, is bureaucracy. No? Bureaucracy is the normal human response to complexity. When things are too complicated, we try to simplify No, We try to make things measurable and, and manageable but in the process we lose the person because the person is com- complex by nature. So bureaucracy simply is that human response to complexity and we may think that we have all the answers as, as Mr. Greer said in, in finding many, many partners to add in, into the mix. In terms of my own uh, mistakes I remember sitting on my ministry desk one day and uh, I was part of Catholic ministry in the inner city. And I remember looking one day at the long line of people coming for food. Uh, And one day it dawned on me that I was seeing the children of those I had been giving food away for many, many years coming themselves now for food. And in that day I discovered that I was part of the problem, not part of the solution. I was helping people keep more or less well-fed, but still in the bondage of dependency. And I discovered on that day that a solid foundation on principles of freedom and in solid anthropology has to precede my action. I cannot simply go from feeling sorry for people to giving them stuff. And because many times under the weight of that free stuff lies their dignity. So I discovered that and I I resigned from my ministry job almost immediately. I began the Freedom and Virtue Institute to learn from that mistake of missing the person and thinking that because I am in the process of meeting certain needs, I am doing the right thing. Oh, uh, let let me add this. This is very important for those who are listening to us. We need to affirm those who are doing work in the inner cities and among the poor, not simply tell them what things are they doing that are wrong. I have learned that there are so many dedicated, good people doing the best they can. So we need to not simply curse the darkness, but turn on the light. In other words, give people an opportunity and an alternative of meeting he, human needs that seems positive, is uplifting, and they can embrace on their own instead of me coming as the rescuer, you know, as the Superman who has all the answers. And then at the end, we miss them and we lose them because we don't respect their work among the poor.
1: You know, I think I think that's really important. I think it also aligns with what Peter said is and, and it's kind of an interesting like a, a meta uh, point. Right. So here we say it's really important that we don't we don't objectify the poor. We have to treat poor people like like subjects. But do we actually treat the people who are helping the poor like subjects yes. or do we objectify yes. them and say, well, you just don't know what you're doing. Let, let me tell you how to think correctly. And I think, I think Back. this goes to, to even Peter's point of this, like um, having this in a sense. So I, I, this is the way I articulate it. We live in an ideological age, you know, we live in an age of ideology where, where everything has to be like the theory of everything. And we're going to explain it perfectly. And um, I think we need to, uh, one of the things maybe is to really cultivate a, a philosophical, Way of engaging with one another, where we're actually willing, make it easy for us to make to, to to correct our mistakes instead of wanting us to hold on because we feel critiqued. I think that's I think that's a, a really good I was a, like meta point that maybe I hadn't thought of until you said it. Like, do do I objectify? Do I, like, if let's say I'm going to critique Peter at Hope International. Well, I can objectify Peter because, you know, I, I care mm-hmm. for the poor. But, well, Peter is a person, too, who's also engaged yes. in these questions. And I think as we begin to do that, especially in this age of ideology, we, we're, we create charity. We create truth in charity. So we speak the truth to one another, but we do it in love, and then we all incrementally learn. I think that's a, that's... Um, a really good, interesting point that I, I mean, I'm struck by it actually right now. Well, so I've got a lot of questions, uh, Peter, and Ismail from from people who are watching, um, and so I just want to ask maybe really quickly before I go to these questions. This conference is on both domestic and international poverty, and 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 both of you, I think, work in this space. I think Peter, if I'm not mistaken, you're more focused on on international uh, questions, uh, but but um, also. You're working with, with, as you said, uh, Ismail, in, in inner cities. What specifically, like when we think about, like when we talk about global poverty, we say, you know, people need opportunity, they need, they need work, et cetera. I think the same thing is the case here. But how, what would you say is a, a different way? What's the difference? Or how should we think about specifically poverty in the United States? What's a big error that we've made in addition to those same big principles you've given. Is there something specific to domestic poverty? All right, Peter, let's start with you and then we'll go to, to um, Ismail.
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the great pieces of, of Poverty Cure is the application that we're talking principles, we're talking ideas that have applicability because they're rooted in who we are as individuals so there's going to be a lot of applicability around the year around the world and I think the one piece that comes to mind is actually the danger of, of looking at it in a bifurcated way, too overly bifurcated of saying those people over there deal with those issues and and those are not the issues that are addressed here. One micro example of this um, around the world, uh, we know about the challenge and the scourge of loan sharks. We know that we, we we know the relationship between loan sharks and poverty and and all of these ills, and yet I don't ever hear anyone use the word loan sharks really in a domestic context. And yet when I drive down certain parts of our country, I see signs for payday lending that sure look and act a whole lot similar to the issues that we're seeing around the world. There's a lot more similarity in the debt trap. There's a lot more similarity. So I think the the piece that came to mind, Michael, is actually thinking about it in an unhealthy way, that the issues that are addressed over there are so fundamentally different from the issues here, instead of saying, where is their commonality? What's the deeper issue? What's, What's the issue that is in who we are? and in how we treat each other for good or for ill, and then look for the ways that those are being lived out. But my experience is there's a lot more commonality uh, than difference in the principles that we're
1: talking about here with Poverty Cure than than differences. Right, thanks, Peter. And and Ismail, just real quick, and then I want to make sure we at least get to a couple of the questions for people who are watching.
2: In the American context, I believe that we tend to hyper-contextualize we don't challenge people enough. And I think that sometimes that happens simply because I say that in America, we are bored in affluence. We have so much that we have even forgotten what real poverty is. I remember coming from Puerto Rico in the 1980s and when the you told me that this was poverty, I said, give me some of that poverty, please, you know? In other words, we sometimes, we hyper contextualize and we don't challenge people in enough. And, and, and in, in the process, we, we we deprive people of the opportunity of, of real engagement in the process of meeting their, their 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 human needs. In America, we have this tendency of creating this idea that that we have an entitlement to certain benefits, and that that we are owed certain. Lifestyle, because the lifestyle we experience is is a high lifestyle. So we need to begin to challenge people a little stronger and stop the hyper context contextualization.
1: Okay, so um, thank you for those those answers. Uh, I think very uh, they open up a lot of other things. And I want to say to to all the people watching. So this is the first uh, this is the first uh, session, but we're we're talking about big. Big picture themes here and there's a lot of sessions where we actually get down into details so um which i think peter and and um ismail are starting to touch on which is good i have some questions from from uh the the uh audience here so um the first question is and let's try to do these because i i've I've taken up all the questions. I took advantage to talk to you uh, both. So let's try to do these kind of on fire rounds here so we can get to a couple of them. How does saviorism and missions degrade the economic potential of impoverished areas? And what steps can be done to combat that? So how does saviorism degrade economic potential of impoverished areas? And what should we do to stop that? Uh, Let's start with you, Peter.
3: Yeah, so we talked about the stakeholder gap uh, second huge one is this nobility trap. This idea that there are some people that are coming in, and uh, we're going to solve all your problems, and and uh, makes us feel good without really creating lasting change. The economic impact is if you're always doing that, you are never, never investing in local communities, in local capacity, and most importantly in people that are going to be there after the intervention ends, after the program ends, or after the short-term trip leaves. So it actually undermines the very <laughs> Basis of long-term economic growth, both from a mental standpoint, from from as well as just from a long-term um, investment standpoint. So, I think this is one of the big lessons learned. Is for those of us that engage in this, we need to repent from uh, any belief that we were the answer, that we were the savior, and get out of the way in some ways for the good and significant locally-based
1: solutions to really continue to thrive. And this also, I think, is the theme of your book, The Spiritual Danger of Doing Good, right? So that we can, we can actually harm, our, we can harm others and ourselves in this process. Let's go to the next question. Um, let's see, so, is the ultimate goal of international development to end international development? Uh, Ismail, you want to take that? Or Peter, I'll, I'll just ask it and then whoever wants to
2: go. I will let Peter address that one because he's in, in that area of international development.
3: Yeah, I mean, the goal for all of us uh, is work yourself out of a job. That is the, that is the highest compliment Uh, whether you have a role within an organization or whether you're a technical consultant or whether you're a program in a period of time, that you would work your way out of a job. And just real quick, uh, for us as Hope International, we have a three-year timeline on our church-based savings group approach because after three years, we've done everything that we know how to do. And if we are not moving away from that, then it is replacing one form of dependency with another form of dependency. And that's, It's not the goal. So yeah, we have a three-year time horizon. We will work, we will train, we will equip, and then we will celebrate and cheer you on as you continue to do the good work without us. So I can think of no higher compliment than when an organization works its way out of business if the business is poverty alleviation or international development.
1: Right, I mean, I think this is the this is the poverty industry, right? So, just one second. John Ronald Noël and Haitian entrepreneur said, "If you're still here after forty years, it's a problem." So, uh, I smell. Sorry, go ahead.
2: I will say that we need to abandon the emotional attachment to the idea that we can rescue the poor. That, uh, to me, that is the, the the greatest problem we have: is this emotional attachment to this idea, and it creates this kind of hierarchy. I, I'm up here with the stuff; these poor people out there in in Africa are down there without it, and we they just need us, and we will feel good in doing it, and 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 that is the greatest problem is this emotional attachment instead of beginning with a a rational, intentional assessment of the deeper needs of the poor.
1: Okay, so very good. Yeah, so so we're going to go again on a speed round here because we only have about a minute and a half left. So uh, Ismail, real quick, how do you, can you address entrepreneurship and poverty alleviation from a Christian perspective? So does poverty and alleviation entrepreneurship, how do they align from a Christian perspective, or are we just kind of adopting a materialist view?
2: Well, it's, it's the imago Dei. We are made in the image of God, the moral capacity of self-realization. We have the capacity to reason so we can know the truth. And we have the relational capacity of making choices so we can do the good. If we are going to attend the full scope of human dignity, it has to be the intrinsic dignity, but also the existential dignity. The intrinsic dignity tells me that Mother Teresa and Hitler were both human and had the same intrinsic dignity. But we can see a difference between them because they chose to believe different things and they chose to live their life in different ways. And the only way to attend that that entrepreneurship, which is nothing but the the lived experience of that internal, deeper uh, capacity of the human person, is by respecting both the intrinsic and the existential dignity of the person.
1: Great, well, thank you, we're, we're out of time. Uh, we have a lot more questions, so maybe we can get Peter and Ismail, maybe I can convince you to come into the discussion room uh, at, at <laughs> Public Care Summit. Uh, we have some questions from India about how, you know, how does, what happens when the, in the transition stages, uh, when when you're moving from a government relied program to others, there's a lot of questions. So if I can get both of you, maybe to join in there for a little bit, I think people would be, love to get your insight. Thank you to both of you for joining. Thanks for all your, your support for me and for our team over the years and for coming on this. Um, as I said, this is really the beginning. This is the first, the first, uh, this panel, the first discussion where we really try to set out big picture things. And I don't think it could be uh, much better than having uh, Peter and Ismail uh, who have both uh, a clear vision, but also are so uh, engaged in working with with people. And I think this, the theme that came out to me, as, as Ismail said at the end, is each of us is a unique, unrepeatable human person, created the image of God willed, uh, for flourishing in this world and for an eternal destiny. Uh, so thank you for joining this first section of the poverty cure summit. Please stay tuned again, look at all the, the, um, we have a lot of, um, on demand. We have a lot of interviews going on and join the discussion rooms and thank you to Peter and Ismael for this first poverty cure summit.
0: As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actinline at actin.org. Until next week, for actonline, I'm Eric Cohn.